So this, uh, this past week, or this past month, I'm sorry, uh, I've been, you, you noticed that Neil said that the new children's ministry team would be shadowing Monica. Well, I have um, had the pleasure of shadowing Neil for the last month. And I thought it might be helpful to sort of give you a little bit of a, a behind-the-curtain the look at what a day in the life of a pastor looks like. Um, as you know, as, as a pastor, we, we don't wake up until 10 a.m. at the earliest. But it's important to get up at 10 because Neil has it timed on his, on his TiVo. Uh, all my children begins at 11 sharp. Um, and, and after that, there's General Hospital... Uh, followed by the days of our lives, which he really likes. I don't get it as much. Uh, really difficult to follow all the different plot lines. Uh, the good news is, though, Neil has a, uh, he has a freezer in his home just full of bonbons. So, we, so we, we, we sit down in front of the TV. Casey takes the kids out so we can get some ministry done. And we, we pop bonbons, and it's a, lot of, it's a lot of fun, the pastoral gig. Um, Every night, uh, we're out to dinner at Lowry's, Morton's, just nice places where we get to, to you know, take people from the congregation or just ourselves. And we, and we, we, we talk about our lives and, and, and what, what's going on. So, uh, as you can tell, uh, this has been just a really a dream job for me. And I, I just want to thank Neil for showing me, showing me what it looks like to be a pastor in the church. <laughs> In, in all seriousness, I have been shadowing Neil uh, for the most part, and I, I've been shocked the extent to which um, he is, he carries uh, the burdens of really all of us uh, to one extent or another. He knows things about everybody here that are hard things, and he, he shoulders that uh, week in, week out. His, his work, I've found, is uh, mostly prayer. There's a lot of prayer that goes on. Uh, in, every day uh, in, in the office, Jeannie and Colleen and Neil uh, sit down and they pray for this church, for each other, uh, for the needs that we have. Uh, day in and day out, you're being bathed with prayer. He does that. He counsels. He prepares uh, in the word to share God's truth with this congregation. And he plans. Uh, Neil, g- the good news is uh, he's not really leaving the church in, in my hands. He's actually already planned out the next two months. He's done, every detail has been taken care of. All I have to do is sort of show up. So things probably will not fall apart during July and August, and Neil, I thank you for that. So Neil's about to take a sabbatical. Um, And it's not just Neil. I think there's a lot of people in this church who need a sabbatical, need a Sabbath rest. I, I observed what goes on in VBS this week, and it's unreal. Monica is about to take a kind of Sabbath from children's ministry. Uh, I, think, I think Doug has needed the Sabbath uh, since he began working, and he hasn't had it yet. So we need to, we need to figure out something for Doug, too. And, and that's not even to talk about people who are in what we might call the real world. Um, those of you who, who work at you know, actual jobs, um, trying to provide for your families. Those of you who uh, raise children, who, I, as I've found, uh, one child is difficult. I can't imagine what two, three, four, how many did the Grimms have? Twelve? So, yeah, 12 kids, Monica, and the children. Unbelievable, really. There's a lot of times where we think we need a rest. Uh, in the scriptures, we, we talk about Sabbath. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard about the Sabbath. If you haven't, you are aware of the Sabbath from your Jewish friends. It's the day of rest, we say. It comes from the Hebrew Shabbat. Uh, the verb is Shabbat. 
And really, it doesn't actually mean rest. It really means stop. It means cease, desist. And it's always talking about work. So, and if you're uh, familiar with your Jewish friends, you know that the, the Jewish tradition um, throughout the years has really tried to develop a, uh, an understanding of what work is. Because if we're going to stop working, we need to know what it is that we're stopping. What it is that we're taking a rest from, a break, a stop, a, de- a, a cease to desist from. What is it? Uh, and the, the, our Jewish friends have, have developed a, a notion that I think um, we in the church would agree with, and that is that uh, our work is the, those projects, those plans that we execute in order to feed our family or make a profit. Those are the things that we do day in, day out, in order to put food on the table, in order to make sure that our families are taken care of, in order to maybe prepare for the future with a, a little extra on the side. That's our work. That's what we do day in, day out. Some of us hate our jobs. Neil loves his job because it's awesome. But a lot of us, we we look at our our day in, day out grind, and we think, man, I would like nothing better than to take a break from this. For others of us, we look at our day-to-day grind, and we're like, ah, I can't wait to get up in the morning, all my children. It's going to be so good. I wonder if Laura's going to wake up from the coma. Oh, boy! That's what it is for some of us. For others of us, it's not. But either way, Sabbath is God's command for us to stop. So, today is the congregation strikes back. Neil has, for the past seven, seven years, is that right, Neil? Seven years. Seven years, every week, he gets up here, and he tells you all the stuff that you need to do or not do. You know, don't be lazy, don't be gluttonous, don't be this, don't be that. Neil has been railing at you for seven years, almost without a stop. Today is our day to strike back. Today is our day to tell Neil what he's going to be doing for the next two months. Um, now, a lot of us would like to do that just off the top of our head. I have a number of things I'd like you to work on. But we're going to let the scriptures be our guide on this. We're going we're to turn to the scriptures to, uh, to get a sense for what it is that Neil ought to be doing. So uh, you can just take out your pew Bibles. Uh, we're going to look at Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, um, it's on page 68 in your pew, pew Bibles. We're only be looking at seven verses. Uh, chapter 25, 1 to 7. Um, just for the record, uh, just so I can be clear. In, in the church, we believe, uh, we know now, that because Jesus has come, we are not required to follow the letter of the law. Uh, so for a long time in the church, especially after um, the Protestant Reformation, uh, Protestant Christians have, uh, have kind of skipped over a lot of the laws. De- uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, and Exodus have not been a huge part of our preaching and teaching. And there's a good reason for that. It's because we don't have to do this anymore. And if you look in Leviticus, you're going to find some really phenomenal uh, uh, laws and rules that, that really should not be followed by anyone, namely not eating bacon. We need to, I'm, I'm super glad that we are in the, the age of grace where we don't have to follow that particular law. However, that being said, that doesn't mean there's not something to learn from the Old Testament laws. Because the same God who sends his son and redeems us from our sins is the same God who gave this instruction, this teaching, literally Torah is teaching, instruction to Israel. Uh, the, the law that he gives to Israel is, is a sort of an expression of God's nature that sort of puts Israel in line. It's kind of like a, 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 a rod that, that straightens Israel's path, that says if you, if you live in light of this teaching, you're not going to go off the path. You're going to be people. You're going to be my people. You're going to be the people that follow my nature, my character. 
And so I think it's actually really, really helpful for us as Christians to find the ways that when we see the laws, the reasoning behind the laws, we're seeing the nature of God, and we see that this is the same nature of the God who gives his son Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for the world. So when we're, when we're looking in Leviticus, while we don't need to necessarily follow the letter of each of these commands, we can look for the spirit and the nature of the God who thought it would be a good idea to become one of us and suffer execution at our hands in order to save us. And we're going to see that a little bit in this short passage. So let's read it together. This is um, about the uh, Shemitah, the Sabbath year. Oh, please stand. All right. Uh, Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a a Sabbath of solemn rest, a solemn stopping of work for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow in your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you. For you, your male and female servants, your hired man and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. Please sit. You've heard of Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug, anybody? Norman Borlaug? You've heard of the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution, yes. Green Revolution, um, from approximately 1970 or 19, maybe 68, up through about 1985, is the Green Revolution. Uh, what was, what was going on is in the late 1700s, Thomas Malthus, a, uh, a British philosopher, uh, started doing some math. And he, he basically put together a, uh, a chart. And the chart says, all right, amount of food produced, right? And there's a line. It's going up, right? We're producing more and more food each year. But it's about a, a level line, right? And then he says, uh, change in population. And that line is really steep, right? It's like this. So you have line like this, line like this. And at that crossing point between these two lines, he says, that's when the famines start. He says, look at the world that we live in. We're not producing enough food to keep up with the population growth that we have. And so he predicts maybe 100, 150 years down the line, we are going to have massive famine throughout the world. Uh, There's going to be wars as a result of famine in order to uh, uh, take care of resources. And the world's going to descend into chaos. Really popular, uplifting book. Uh, Became uh, a huge bestseller. Doomsdayers were going through. In fact, in 1968 around the time that his prediction was about to come true, a man named Paul Ehrlich produced, uh, pr- uh, published a book named The Population Bomb. You remember this book, for those of you who are? The Population Bomb. And The Population Bomb suggested, if you look at India, India is going to have about 200 million people in 1971. They're producing this much food. There's no way India can feed its own population. 
Not only that, there's no way that we can export enough food to keep that population fed. And don't worry about India, because Asia is looking even worse. It's a little bit farther down the line, but East Asia is going to be a complete disaster. China is going to turn into, and to some extent during the, uh, the communist revolution in China, this in some ways happened, it's going to turn into a famine-wracked land of destruction. Paul Ehrlich, also very popular, bestseller. He uh, did really well based on his doom and gloom scenarios. The crazy thing is, none of it happened. You, 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 none of us have heard about that. We've not heard of these famines that swept through India. We haven't heard about the famines that swept through uh, East Asia. We have heard about a lack of food, and there are, I think that um, right now the United Nations estimates that about 36 million people die of starvation each year. So there is hunger in the world. I don't want to suggest that there's not. But 36 million people a year is a lot better than the 1 billion people that Paul Ehrlich predicted would starve to death between 1968 and 1990 in his book. One billion people. How did it happen? Well, Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug was a good Lutheran farm boy from the, middle, the Midwest. I believe he was from Minnesota. He grew up on a farm. He lived through the Great Depression. He uh, became a really, he really wanted to study agriculture because he saw the effects of the Dust Bowl on uh, Americans that lived in the Midwest at the time. And he wanted to find a way to stop starvation. So Norman Borlaug, he turned to that unfailing guide, that thing that saves us all the time, everyday science. He became a scientist, and he studied the production of agriculture, and he began, he began to uh, use genetics to change uh, wheat varieties, right? He would alter wheat varieties, and he, he created um, a kind of wheat staff that was very small, slender, but had a sturdy stock and produced a lot of wheat on the head, right? And he used this because he was thinking, what we need to do is we need to take, there's a limited amount of arable land in the world. Earth is, has a, as a planet, you can't grow in Antarctica, but you can grow in Southern California and other places. So what we need to do is we need to take as, as small an area as possible and create the maximum amount of food in that small area. And so he developed what he called high-yield varieties, high-yield varieties of, of, uh, of wheat. And then he also transferred this to rice, other grains. He used uh, a lot of pesticides in order to make sure that they were healthy, they didn't get eaten by bugs. He made them resistant to... Um, Various uh, strains of like uh, wheat rust, you've heard of that. So that these, these were hardy, unstoppable, all-growing grains. In fact, he made them so that they were able to grow in different climates. So that if you lived near, say, uh, for example, the mountains near Pakistan, you could still grow. You could still be a farmer. You could still have a reliable produce. And this is what happened. So, 1968, Ehrlich's population bomb comes out. That is the same year that Norman Borlaug, working from his, uh, his, um, his lab in Mexico, began transferring his high-yield varieties to India. In three years, just as Ehrlich's prediction was about to come true, the entire country of India doubled its production of wheat. Doubled it. Because of Norman Borlaug's uh, work, the United States of America, from the period of 1950 up to 1986, increased our production of, of crops 250%. We right now live in a world where there is so much food 
that if we distributed it evenly, there would be no starvation. Nobody would go hungry because we produce that much. It's almost, Borlaug does suggest though that by 2113, we're going to face another, another uh, crossing of the Malthusian um, uh, graph. So we're not out of the woods yet. But for right now, this man developed the, the science that would make our, our crops hardy and voluble enough to feed the entire world, which is pretty amazing stuff. And so uh, a lot of people say he won the Nobel Peace Prize, I think, in uh, 1990. Uh, he just passed away in 2009. Um, he's been called uh, the greatest human being who ever lived because he saved a billion lives. I would like to think that maybe Jesus was the greatest human being who ever lived because I feel like he saved the whole world, but okay. Norman Borlaug did pretty good too, and he did it in Jesus' name, which uh, I, I think is interesting. And it, you'll notice that the New York Times obituary does not mention his Lutheran faith. Well, what can we say about that? What's interesting, though, is you look at Nor- what Norman Borlaug does, and he is a great American. As Americans, we look at a small plot of land and we say, how can we make this the most efficient, best-growing land in the world? And we find a way to do it. We create high-yield varieties. We, I mean, Norman Borlaug, is, he is the American. Like, everyone... Ehrlich, Malthus, they say, it's hopeless. There's no hope. Norman Borlaug says, we're going to put our, our shoulder to the grindstone. We're going to do the hard work. We're going to study it out. And we're going to find a way to save the world. And he did it. The original man of steel, Scott. Now compare, for a moment, Norman Borlaug to Leviticus. What does the scripture say? What does, what does the scripture say? It says to Israel... Okay, you're planting your crops six years. Awesome. On the seventh year, just leave it alone. Just, just kind of, whoop, just walk away. Um, if stuff grows, great, you can pick it and eat it, but just, just kind of let it hang out. No big deal. Can you imagine Norman Borlaug hearing that, right? There's people about to starve in India, and... Um, you know, his, his Jewish friend comes along and says, ah, I'm sorry, that does not follow uh, halakhic law. We're going to have to wait on the seventh year. They, they can't eat. Sorry. Norman Borlaug would say what he always said when critics came after his work. He said, you don't know what it looks like when someone's hungry. I do. He even, uh, in his Nobel um, Peace Prize acceptance speech, talked about uh, the vision of Isaiah in the Old Testament where Isaiah predicts um, the coming uh, kingdom of God when, when there will be no hunger. And he says, that's the, the world I want to live in. So he looks at that and he says, he says, my Jewish friend, I love you. You have wonderful ideas, but we need to feed people. And the way to do that is to be efficient. Now, one thing we might say is we might say, well, maybe uh, the scriptures are just out of date. Maybe the scriptures just don't have anything to teach us. We know better. We've got the science. We know what to do. Maybe God's just a really bad um, agronomist, right? Maybe God's just a really bad farmer. He doesn't understand how to, how to do well at farming. Maybe that's the case. And that's why he gives such bad advice to Israel. I want to suggest that that's not the case. Interesting fact. Um, in, before uh, the Maccabean Revolt, when the Jews were uh, oppressed, the, uh, their enemies found out that they were really easy to beat in battle. They're super easy. You, you could beat a Jewish army. It doesn't matter what you've got. You could beat them with fists. All you have to do is wait till Saturday. And then you just ride on in, and they're not allowed to pick up their swords, and they just kind of sit there like, ah, uh-oh. 
It's true. It's true. We actually have um, records of how Judas Maccabee talks to his brother, um, Judas and Simon. And Simon's the high priest. And Simon's like, yeah, uh, I, think God, I think God's going to be okay about us, you know, picking up swords on the Sabbath, because otherwise we're not going to win this war. So they, they do have a little theological. And then the, the rabbis take this tradition. And so now there are ways around some of the Sabbath restrictions. But you can see that in general, Sabbath keeping is not a great way to run your life. It's not efficient. If you want to have a really productive farm, you can't keep Sabbath. If you want to have a really productive army, you need to be able to fight on Saturday. Uh, there, there is, there's, yeah. there's this awful story where they just sit there and they just get... Yes, uh, but, and, and they sit there out of, out of, out of reverence for God. They're trying to keep, the God, keep God's law. Keeping your fields fallow, um, that means uh, not producing anything on, on the land, is an old tradition, but it's not the most efficient tradition. We have ways now of injecting fertilizer with nitrogen. We have ways now of, of constructing um, hardy crops so that we can almost, almost have a field produce 24-7, 365. Here in Southern California, that happens. There is never a day when our fields are not producing. They are creating and creating and creating and creating. And notice in the, in the scriptures how the, the, the fields are, are, are talked about. It's almost as if they're alive. Almost as if they're a person. Verse 4. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. Haaretz. The land itself gets to stop working. What do we make of that? If your goal is food production and your goal is stopping starvation, this is not good advice. This is not good teaching. But if your goal is soul craft, if your goal is teaching people what God-fearing life looks like, this is a powerful symbol. For a few reasons. The first and the most obvious is that we, by, by treating the land this way, we see how our own lives are to look. Our lives are to be punctuated by regular rest, stopping work, stopping what we do to produce food and profit. Stop. The land does it, so shall you. And in fact, if, you're a, um, if you are a, a mostly agrarian culture, as early Israel was, then if the land is lying fallow, you don't have much to do. You too rest for the year. You too take the year off. That's not uncommon in the Old Testament. If you're a young uh, soldier and you get married, you get a year with your wife. Well, you might want to join the Israeli army before you propose. Because yeah, it's full paid, benefits, everything. You're good. Um, yeah. There, the idea that, that there is rest, that that part of life is not work, that's built into the created order in Scripture. That's a, the, the most basic a level in which we learn from the way that God teaches on the Sabbath. And so, Neil, you're not allowed to work. I'm going to be blowing up your cell phone. Every five minutes, I'm like, Neil, help. Neil, help. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You can't pick up. You're just going to have to say no. 
Probably, pretty, probably what's going to happen is then Jeannie and Colleen, flustered because of the incompetence in the office, are going to begin blowing you up. You just say no. In fact, maybe just put your uh, phone on auto-forward to Dave Bennett. <laughs> right? So I call you, go straight to my father, and, he, <laughs> and he'll be like, um, just deal with it. Like, what's, what's your problem? <laughs> Love you. All right. I think, ultimately... There's a second thing and a deeper thing that we're to learn from this teaching, this instruction. Notice that the fields don't stop producing. If you look at uh, verses 6 and 7, And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female servants, your hired man, and the stranger who dwells with you. For your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? When we, uh, if, if you go into the wilderness, which I've never been to, but I've heard it's beautiful. When you go into the wilderness, you find that even though there aren't people to till the fields and cultivate it, things still grow. In fact, if, if you're good at foraging, you can go into the wilderness and you can live off the land, which is what I understand Neil will be doing for the next two months. In order, he's going off the grid. The NSA will not be able to find Neil for the next two months. So he's going to be foraging up in the land of Alaska, and he's going to find that even though the Alaskan uh, farmers aren't there you know, tilling the field, he can still make a living. He can still survive off the land because the land doesn't need us. Right? We, we, Norman Borlaug showed us how we can make the land do what we want, but the land itself does not need us. It's almost as if there's a tripod. Right? There's three legs. There's the land... There's us and our work, and then there's God. But this isn't like normal tripods. When you take us away, this tripod doesn't fall over. In fact, what it does is stuff that we can't imagine. We cannot imagine the beauty and the produce and the, the, the vegetation, the, the, the flourishing of land that doesn't have us controlling it. And all you need to know that that's true is to look on Google Google image search for wilderness and see what God makes out of uncultivated land. And I think this is an image for us. It's an image for us of what Sabbath rest looks like. It's where we stop our, our, our plans and our projects. We open up our hands, we let go, and we step back and we see what God and the land do without us. We see what beautiful things grow up when we're not controlling them, when we're not subjecting them to our will and our desires. We see what the Holy Spirit does when the Holy Spirit moves through our lives without us making demands on him. Sabbath rest is the time where we see what God does without our input. Neil, the next two months, you will not be executing your projects and plans. But that does not mean that your life is not going to have the hand of God over it. It doesn't mean that what you see in your life won't be the work of God. In fact, it means you're going to see what God does when you're not running the show. 
you're going to see what God does when you say no more projects, no more plans. I want to just hear what you have. It's interesting, our Jewish friends in their tradition, when they, when they think about what they do on the Sabbath, they celebrate. They, they have meals with friends and family. They laugh. They dance. They just do, they just have fun. And in the midst of that, they wait and see what God creates out of it. When we stop working and we just do what we do, that's when we get to see what the Holy Spirit has to surprise us with. It's when we get to walk into the garden and say, I didn't know I, we didn't have those seeds. How did that get there? We get to see God providing for us again when we stop providing for ourselves. We get to see that God's got plans and projects that we're not even aware of. And then when Sabbath is over, when we go back to work, we get to take that input, say, God's doing these things. Now, let's go and execute God's projects again and God's plans. Neil, what's going to happen over the next two months is you're going to get new ideas. You're going to get fresh uh, understandings of what church can be, what this community can be, what, who you are as a pastor. All these things are going to start coming up because the Holy Spirit is going to be generating them. And then when you come back in September, that's going to be your time to, to hard, harness God's projects with us. And Neil, I think we as a congregation would like to say that we're ready for that. We're excited about that. We can't wait to see what God shows you on your, on your time off. For the rest of us, it's clear. When we stop and we enjoy each other, and when we stop harvesting our projects and our plans, executing this and executing that, and we see what God has for us in our lives, then we can come back to work, and we can come back to producing, and we can come back to cultivating, and we can harness God's projects for this church, for our families, even in our, our work day to day. New ideas, new, new uh, chances, new, new opportunities, those things will come to us, and we can begin to implement them. Coast Bible Church. We've just finished VBS. We're about to enter the summer, traditionally a time of rest. Um, for those of you who um, are hard working day in, day out, Jesse, Christina, I know you guys have a vacation coming up. All right? Well earned, well deserved. Wherever you're taking your Sabbath, however your Sabbath comes, think what is God going to grow in my garden when I stop managing it? What is God going to grow in our lives when I stop producing and planning and executing it? Give space for the Lord of the world who still creates produce even when we don't, even when we don't Norman Borlaug it. Let that God enter into your lives, enter into your rest, and show you what he has for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a people from a busy culture, from a non-stop, 24-7, 365 culture. God, we need to stop. We need to see what 
you make in our gardens. We need Sabbath rest. God, we pray that you will teach us to find that rhythm in our lives, to find the place where we stop planning and projecting and executing, and and instead we just enjoy. We just stop and we look at the world that you've made and what you do in it when we don't create and cultivate. Lord God, send your Holy Spirit to this church. Grow up beautiful and unexpected plants during our Sabbath this summer. Holy Spirit, go forth into Neil's life, into Neil's heart, into the Anderson family, and grow up new plants, new visions, new ideas, new hopes, new dreams, that when he returns, he can begin to implement. God, open our eyes to your work. Give us hearts that are willing to have our projects turned aside and your projects begun. Give us rest, refreshment, enjoyment, new, abundant life that you promise in the water of your living Son, Jesus Christ. Quench our thirst in that water today and in every other. In his name we pray, amen.